Hi there and welcome to the very first episode from the Cambridge Creative Writing Centre. I'm Midge Gillis from the Cambridge Creative Writing Centre and today I'm chatting with best-selling crime fiction author Sophie Hanna. Sophie's latest book is How to Bear a Grudge, although she promises she doesn't bear me one, and she's also the author of the new Poirot series and the best-selling crime fiction series Simon and Charlie. Most importantly for us, Sophie is also course director of our new crime and thriller writing masters at the University of Cambridge. We talk about a whole range of things to do with how Sophie writes, including the trick of giving your main characters the wicked character traits you secretly covet, and whether you should answer the doorbell when it rings. We also talk about giving yourself permission to be a writer, and how doing a course in creative writing can unlock your inner editor. And we look at the elements Sophie will be including in her own course on crime and thriller writing. We also cover the best time and place to write and why Sophie can't take her own brilliant advice, procrastination, and finally we consider why Sophie's dog should not be Prime Minister. Now, have you been inspired with a brilliant book idea at a weird time? Are you a crime fiction writer or reader? Do you have a favourite Sophie Hanna novel that you'd like to recommend? I would really like to hear about it. You can email me at midge.gillis at tutor.ice.cam.ac.uk. Hello and welcome to the first in a series of podcasts about crime and thriller writing. I'm Midge Gillis and I oversee the many creative writing courses we offer at the University of Cambridge's Centre for Creative Writing based at Maddingley Hall. We already run short, long and online courses in crime writing and this year we're launching a new Masters in Crime and Thriller Writing led by best-selling crime writer Sophie Hanna. Sophie's with me today in a studio in Cambridge and we'll be talking about her career and her approach to the craft of crime writing and her talent for making up murders and other crimes. Welcome Sophie. Thank you, thanks for having me on the podcast. <laughs> so Sophie, you seem like a really nice person. Thank um, you. How- <laughs> You're welcome. How did you get into the murky world of crime writing? Well, I think that part of the reason I'm able to be quite nice in real life, um, and I'm not always nice in real life, but I Uh mainly am. I try to be. Uh, And part of the reason for that is that all my sort of interest in, you know, the dark impulses of the human psyche and weird dysfunctional behaviour, and I think actually my own dark side, all comes out in the crime fiction and in fact that's one of the things I say occasionally readers will email me and say I read your book and it was really gripping and I thought the plot was great but the main character who's usually a woman if Mm -hmm. it's one of my books the main character was not very likable and sympathetic and she did this bad thing and she said that thing that was a bit bad tempered and and why is this and why can't you write a more likable character Mm. Um, and I realized after a while that If I were to write really diplomatic, well-behaved, likeable characters all the time, I would have to be more badly behaved in real life. So it's kind of like the dark side's got to come out somewhere. Yes. And I figure it makes more sense for me, since I am a crime writer, to have the bad behaviour in the crime novels and the good behaviour in my real life. Right. So (laughs) it seemed a good way round. Right. So So it's it's a bit like Dorian Gray, you know, the picture in the attic. So in particular, in relation to my female protagonist. So my female protagonist can be quite strident and ruthless Mm. in kind of protecting people they love and fighting against injustice and generally sort of kicking up a fuss if bad things are going on. And I 
actually quite seriously think that that is compensation for my natural proclivity in real life, which is smooth over, be nice, be diplomatic. And I've been like that since a very young age. I've always been really good at being the peacemaking person who makes sure everybody's feeling Mm. okay. Um, And it's just interesting. Like, I wasn't aware of this thing going on and this trade-off between Mm. me being super diplomatic no matter how badly anyone behaves and the crime fiction where my heroines are far from diplomatic and they often sort of wade in and they're very direct. Yes. You know, um, can be quite stroppy and sarcastic and difficult to deal with. And I think there's definitely a relationship there that, right. a, that a psychotherapist would have a field day with. Well, that's really interesting because I've met quite a few crime novelists and they're all lovely. And um, I'm told that uh, romantic fiction writers are the ones you really want to watch because, you know, you don't want to turn your back on them because they're very ruthless. But um, would you agree with that or not? No, not at all. But actually, I'm glad you've brought it up because this is a thing. I mean, I've yeah. heard that said hundreds of times. It is definitely a rumour that's going around uh, and has been for some time that romance writers are horrible and backstabbing and crime writers are lovely and friendly. It's absolute nonsense. Writers of any genre are just people. Mm -hmm. Among the romance writing community and the crime writing community, there are presumably some not very nice people, but most of, you know, the overwhelming majority of writers of all genres that I meet are lovely and in fact some of the nicest writers Mm. that I know are romance writers Mm -hmm. I would actually say that the romance writers I know from sort of Twitter and the literary Mm. scene in general are some of the nicest friendliest most supportive Mm. people Mm -hmm. out there so so I've no idea how that rumour got started but it is completely untrue probably started by a crime writer wasn't it yeah exactly don't trust those crime writers (laughs) um but you've written poetry and short stories and a a self-help book as well so how would you say that they all contribute to your overall voice as a crime writer so what seems to have happened is that my writing obsessions have gone in stages Mm. and i never set out to think I'm going to have a writing career that lasts for this long and first I'm going to be a poet and then a crime writer. I didn't think of it in a kind of long-term plan way. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I never even planned to be a writer because writing was always my hobby. Mm -hmm. So from a very young age, writing was all I cared about doing in a sort of serious, you know, in terms of like serious pastimes and things to do. I never worked hard at school particularly. And as I got older, as I got into secondary school and sixth form college and university, I did basically very little work, but I worked very, very hard on my hobby, which was writing. And so because it was my hobby and it was not what I was supposed to be doing, it just never occurred to me that it could be a career. It was always just going to be my favorite hobby. And I deliberately set out to get a job when I left university that would be very easy and very boring and would leave me lots of mental energy Mm. free for my writing. And I don't know why it never occurred to me that it could be my actual career, but it it totally didn't. I was going to be a secretary. I I type very, very fast and I'm quite well organized. So I was going to be a secretary in a sleepy institution who basically pursued her writing hobby and I would have been very, very happy doing that. So... What happened was I I happened to get published as a poet first. I was writing mystery stories and, well, crime novels, really. I was writing very immature crime novels as a teenager. 
and very immature poetry. And then it just so happened that my poetry writing kind of took a big leap forward at a certain point when my crime writing still hadn't. So at that point, I started getting lots of acceptances from poetry magazines while I was still getting rejections for the crime novels I was writing. So then I just thought, because I'm very practical, I thought, clearly I'm good at writing poetry and less good at writing fiction, so I'm going to be a poet. So then I just wrote poetry almost exclusively for about 10 years. And my poetry, because it rhymed, scanned and made sense, every poetry festival suddenly wanted to book me, because even if they thought I was a bit lowbrow, because, you know, after all, rhyming, scanning and making yes. sense is still still slightly sneered at yeah. in, in some literary circles. Um, but even the snobbiest poetry festival organisers wanted at least one poet that their audience might understand yeah. and find amusing. So yes. I was getting booked out all over the place for poetry festivals. My first poetry book won a prize and became quite quite a be- I mean, a bestseller in poetry terms, yes. which is not a bestseller in yeah. fiction terms. Yeah. But so what happened was I was working as a secretary in this very quiet institution and suddenly I was in demand all over the place from poetry festivals and my boss started saying in a slightly snippy way, you're supposed to be my secretary and yet here I am taking all these calls from the Cheltenham Literary Festival. Um, So as that was going on, I was approached out of the blue by Trinity College, Cambridge, Mm -hmm. who basically said, would you like to come and be our fellow commoner in creative arts? And how did that feel? Well, it was it was a slightly long story because I I went for an interview and initially didn't get it because they they don't advertise it. They just sort of say, yes, I mean, it's amazing. I I adore Trinity College and I would heartily recommend everyone go there. Um, So I was invited for an interview. I went along, fell in love with Cambridge and Mm. with Trinity, but didn't get the job, but came second. Right. And so the Creative Arts Committee said to me, um, if we basically say, will you do this next time it's available, would you say yes? And I played hard to get for about 15 (laughs) seconds and then said, yes, 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 I will. So I had it the next time, which was two years later. And then while I had that job at Trinity, which was basically like a paid writing fellow, I mean, it was oh, just heaven yeah. on a stick. Mm-hmm. It's the best job I've ever had. Um, and in fact, it then spoilt me for future jobs. Yes. Because like it was just like yeah. for someone my age who'd only published a few How old poetry, were you then? 24, right. 25. And you were living in Manchester? I was not only, I was living in Manchester, yes. but I was living in the kind of guns and robbery and drugs district of Manchester because I'd I'd just recently been a poor student Mm -hmm. so my boyfriend and I he's now my husband but he was my boyfriend Mm. at that point we were living in an area where if someone rang your bell you would not open the door right you just wouldn't people were like turning up at people's houses and just walking in armed and robbing the place while the owners Uh were in this was like happening all over our little area which was sort of on the border of Moss Side and Fallowfield and so I went from that to living in a Trinity College owned flat. And it was just amazing. And I, <laughs> I didn't realize how funny this was at the time, but I vividly remember when we arrived in Cambridge, Trinity had arranged for us to be shown our beautiful flat yes. by the guy from Bidwells, who was in Bidwells as an estate agent, yes. who was in charge of like showing new fellows to their flats. And as he showed us in, I said to him, if someone rings the doorbell, you know, what's the protocol about whether you open the door or yes. not? And he was like, well, of course you open the door. Why wouldn't you? I was like, well, if someone's like a, yes. a burglar maybe or armed. And he was like, no, no, no. 
but that doesn't happen in Cambridge. So like that was what yes. a culture shock it was, yeah. but it was amazing. So then I had two years at Trinity where my only, I mean, I didn't have any duties. It was mm. an opportunity for me to do my writing. That was like Trinity's way of sort of encouraging young people to pursue their particular art form. And so that was when... I started thinking, you know, that was when I had the time mm. to sort of think about novels. So then I published, I wrote a novel while I was at Trinity, which I then published, but it wasn't a crime novel. It was mm -hmm. another few years before I got into yeah. crime writing. So I sort of had my big poetry phase, 10 years. Then I wrote these three kind of weird comic novels, yes. which were, I mean, I love them, but they were very weird. They were never going to be yeah. mass market or commercial. They didn't sell particularly well. And then... When I was 31, I had my idea for my f for what became my first published right. crime novel. Was this when you were giving birth? It was when I was, well, giving birth is an optimistic way <laughs> to put it. I'd spent five days totally failing to give birth. Yes. Uh, but eventually, having used up all the drugs and doctors in the hospital, they managed to extract a baby. Yes. Um, and... I then sort of pretty much conked out as soon as this baby, because I hadn't slept for four nights. No. I'd been trying to have this baby. When I woke up, there was no baby in the room uh -huh. where I was, and I couldn't move. So I pressed a buzzer, and a nurse came in with a baby, and I just sort of put my arms out to take the baby, and this nurse kind of sprang back as though I'd done something weird yes. and said, what are you doing? This yes. is not your baby. And I was like, oh, okay, and why did you bring her into my room? <laughs> so she then went out came back in with another baby who looked identical and said, mm. this is your baby. I was like, okay, that baby looks exactly the same yes. as the one that was yes. just in here. So that made me start thinking, this is really weird. I am this baby's closest relative in the mm. whole world. I have no idea what she looks like. Yeah. And I'm relying on a total stranger. So my first crime novel, Little Face, uh, is about a woman who, when her daughter is two weeks old and they're back at home, they've left the hospital, everything's going well, the mother goes out for the first time since the birth without her daughter. Mm -hmm. When she gets back to the house a couple of hours later, there is a baby in the house and it's wearing her daughter's clothes and it's asleep in her daughter's cot. But she swears blind that the baby in the house is not her daughter. Right. And nobody believes yeah. her. So you can see there's a direct link there. To yes. My, yes. My experience. In so hospital. had you read a lot of crime fiction up until that point? absolutely stacks right. i've been addicted to crime yeah. fiction since i was about six right and i discovered enid blyton's secret seven books and i raced through them then i read all the five find outer books yes which are enid blyton's mm -hmm. other mystery series then i got hooked on agatha christie yeah. which kept me busy for a number of years then ruth rendell so yeah. you know reading crime and mystery fiction has always been my absolute yes. passion yeah so had you done had you done your ma in creative writing at this point or not so i did my ma in creative writing immediately after my degree so sort of like 93 to 94 right so yeah that was long before i wrote little face i wrote yeah. little face sort of 2003 right um, but when I did my MA, the MA course, it was Manchester University's first year yes. of having an MA course. And it was just like a dream for mm. me. Like I, I'd, I'd started university not because I particularly wanted to go. By that point, I was so sick of being 
in education yeah. and having to like go to rooms and do things you know you're just like you've been there forever yeah. just, so I was like wanting to leave and go and set up a chain of hairdressing salons that was my seriously yeah Oh, I was desperate what to would set it have up a called? chain of hairdressing Did salons. you have a pun ready or not? I didn't. No. <laughs> yeah, like curl up and die. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, didn't have a pun. Um, and my dad, who was very keen for me to go to university and mm. not set up a chain of hairdressing salons, particularly after I'd cut his hair a few times, <laughs> he said, look, just, just start. Just try university. And yeah. if you hate it, then you can leave. So I started. I hated it. I nearly left. And then my dad said, well, before you leave, <laughs> just try changing subjects. Because so I'd started off doing French and Spanish. Right. And I just, I don't know what it was. It wasn't the course's fault. Mm. I just, it just wasn't my thing. Mm. Uh, and I wanted then at that point to change to English. And the English department said I couldn't because I wouldn't be able to catch up on what I'd missed. Yeah. And I would have been able to. Yeah. They were just, I was like, trust me, I'll be able to catch yes. up. They're like, no, no, no. Um, so in the end, somebody, I think somebody at the university said, well, look, why don't you do combined studies uh -huh. and then you can choose the courses you want to do oh, from the English department yes. and the courses you want to do from the American literature department. Mm. So actually I got to do a brilliant literature degree mm. and I could pick and choose the courses I wanted and ignore all the yeah. courses that I didn't want. So that was amazing. And then when I was at the end of my first year of doing that, it was announced that the English department and the American department together were going to launch a creative writing undergraduate module. Yeah. And that was just like so exciting because mm. I was writing all the time anyway. I was like, yay, my hobby is going to be something that counts as work. Yes. Uh, so I then did the undergraduate course in creative writing for two years and I was so conscientious. You know, I was... I didn't really do very much in any other bits of the mm -hmm. course, but the creative writing, I was like working really, really hard. Um, and then just as the third year was coming to an end, again, it was suddenly announced that they were going to do this creative writing MA. So the MA was actually in novel writing. Uh -huh. Most people on the course weren't writing a crime novel, but I obviously was yes. because I just thought this is what I'm reading. It's what I love. Yeah. Um, so I wrote I, I wrote uh, a crime novel on the course. Right. So it, it wasn't the one I submitted. So I, I spent the whole of the taught year yes. writing this novel, which at a certain point I just started to know I just didn't want to write. Right. And so at the end of the taught part of the course, I had to sort of think, well, do I want to stick with this thing which I know is the wrong thing, mm. but it is what I've had all my feedback on? Or do I want to just totally cut that loose, yeah. start from scratch with no taught bits of the course mm. remaining, just do this on my own? Yeah. And I decided to do that because my other idea I was really excited yes. about. Yeah. And it was fine and I got a distinction and it was all good. But it felt quite scary Yeah. admitting scary. that I wanted to basically totally ditch yes. the book I'd been working on yeah. for the whole yeah. taught part of the course. So you, you've been designing a, a master's programme for yes. the which is really exciting. So tell us a bit about that and what you wanted it to um, cover to be a good master's programme. So, well, the master's is specifically in crime and thriller writing. Yes. But one thing I wanted it to do and want it to do is really encompass anything that might conceivably be in that genre. Mm -hmm. So um, I didn't want there to be a narrow definition of what crime fiction should yes. be because actually if you talk to anyone who loves the genre you know they might well love sort of traditional 
police procedurals, yes. but they might also love, you know, some kind of crossover futuristic mm. fantasy novel that has an element of suspense or mystery in it. Um, and one of my favourite crime writers, in fact, probably my favourite crime writer, Agatha Christie, yes. uh, who's my crime writing hero, she was really kind of diligent and determined about extending the boundaries of what the genre mm. could contain. Yeah. So, you know, long before people were talking about griplet and domestic noir, yeah. Agatha wrote Endless Night, which mm. is very much a psychological thriller yes, with yeah. a very modern sort of feel to it. And, you know, it's not a traditional detective novel, but it's very much crime mm. fiction. People who love the genre know what a crime novel yes, is. Yeah. So I, I, you know, people have been contacting me now saying, I really want to apply, but what if my idea is not enough of a crime yes. novel? And so far... Everyone I've had that conversation with, when I say, well, okay, tell me a bit about the book yes. you want to write, it always is crimey yes. enough. Yes. And it may not, and that may not even mean that there's a crime in it, but if it's mystery driven mm. or if there's a strong element of suspense. Um, so that's the first thing I wanted to do. I wanted yeah. to have, you know, it would be great, for example, if all the people who enroll for the course are interpreting the crime novel as a very different yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then I wanted it to you know, cover everything that I think someone setting out to write crime should know about and learn about, mm. uh, which is so many things. I mean, obviously, it's like the history of the genre, all yes. the different subgenres, the conventions and the traditions of what's been written in the crime and yeah. thriller area so far. Um, and then also things to do with the writing, like how what happens sort of a third into the novel where you've worked really hard on your brilliant beginning, what skills do you then need to sustain That's a tricky it? Bit, yeah. yeah, which is a whole different yeah. ball game, isn't it, from mm. starting off well, which is why so many novels sort of flag yes. in the middle. Um, and also I wanted it to have a really strong component of the students learning how to develop their own inner editor mm. because that was actually the most beneficial thing for me of the MA in novel writing that yeah. I did every week. I mean, we didn't actually, because it was the first year, it was really basic. It was a bit sort of no frills. Yes. We, I mean, we were all perfectly happy with it, but we hardly had anything laid on for us. Right. The, ma the main thing we had was a two-hour workshop every week. So okay. we'd take turns. Yes. And when it was your turn, you would distribute your however many thousand words and everyone in the group would write their comments on a printed copy mm. and give it back to you at the end of the class but there would also be a discussion in class of your work and I think that is probably the single most valuable thing I've ever had happen to me in terms of developing my own inner editorial voice because someone will say you know I think this chapter is brilliant mm. but you definitely need to have Mary being a hedgehog rather than a person yes and someone else will say, no, 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 Mary definitely shouldn't be a hedgehog. But what you need is a, a ring of spies exchanging international secrets. And you will find that whereas before you didn't know how to think about your own work, you're suddenly going, well, yeah, I love the hedgehog yeah. idea, but definitely not yes. spies. Yes. And that's how you yeah. develop your own inner mm. 
Sort and of you become resilient sense. as well, don't you? I mean, you have to be if you can yes, be Yes, I mean, hopefully writer. you do. There are yes. some people, I mean, I, in, when I was a student on an MA in writing, there were a lot of, you know, people bursting into tears and going, what do you mean move the semicolon? That <laughs> semicolon was inspired by my dead grandfather. So, you know, you do get people yes. who are very sensitive. But yeah, you have to learn to yeah. shape up and be able to cope with yes. that or at least to handle it diplomatically. Yeah. You know, if there's someone on the course you don't get on with. I always say... Um, that it was as valuable to me learning to navigate the egos of other writers yeah um as the actual sort of writing yes. instruction the other thing is as well as getting your own work workshop the brilliant mm. thing about the course i did and, and also it will be the case with our new course mm. as well is that you hear other people's work getting workshops yes. and actually that is as valuable yeah. in terms of what you can learn and sometimes even more valuable because what you sometimes can't see about your own work you can see mm. you know if it if it's robert's work that's being workshop and he's going no i think it's brilliant as it is and you might be thinking well no this mm. critic this critique about this is right yeah. and he should do that and it would yeah. agree. so you actually get the benefit of everybody else's yes. workshopping as well as yeah. your own and where does the cambridge element come into all of this what do you think being part of the university can offer well i mean the course is going to be taught at Maddingley Hall, yes. which is in a village just outside Cambridge, which is the most beautiful place I've yes. ever been to. It's like this stunning old building. Most of the teaching rooms look like sort of drawing rooms from Agatha Christie yes. novels, uh, which for a crime and thriller masters is absolutely perfect. Yeah. You know, you could literally imagine a butler coming in with some poison in a glass, which will really hopefully yes. inspire people. So. The physical surroundings are yes. beautiful. And then because of the because it's Cambridge University mm. who's delivering the course, we've got access to so many experts and mm. brilliant academics and specialists. You know, we've got the people in the criminology department mm. who can come in and talk to the students about, you know, real life crime. Yes. And um, we've got people from the English department mm -hmm. who can come in and talk about literature. So you know, it's great to have all these amazing kind of world-class mm. academics who we can sort of use to um, come in and talk to the students yeah. and just add that extra layer um, to enrich the experience. Mm. So it's not just about them and the no. workshops and the writing. And, and lots of guest speakers who you know. Yeah, so other, another really yeah. important part of the course is that there are going to be many, many guest speakers, yeah. not only crime writers of every possible yes. kind, but also people from every possible area of the industry so agents publishers traditional publishers and more sort of modern mm. ebook publishers mm -hmm. um uh agents who deal with selling books to be adapted for film yeah. and tv um anyone who relates to the world of writing in any way we're going to get them yeah. in to talk to the students sounds great um, can I just ask a bit about your approach to writing? Um, you're particularly good at getting under the skin of a character. Can you give any tips as to how you do that? I mean, I think I think people write according to their own interests and obsessions. Yeah. So I am mainly fascinated by what goes on in people's minds. And especially when I'm writing crime fiction... Like, I'm not particularly interested in the mechanics mm. of the crime. So I very rarely have, 
you know, this is a very unusual murder method. And it turns out that somebody worked out that if you put potassium in helium, then it makes someone's head explode or whatever. That, that's the kind of the, the sciencey stuff and the practical yeah. stuff is not my mm -hmm. particular area. I love the sort of why did someone do this? What strange combination of things going on in yeah. their mind would have led them to behave in this way? Uh, and in my books, often the solving of the mystery of what happened and who did what mm. and why, in order to solve that puzzle, you have to first solve the puzzle of a person. Yes. And so it's really about, like, unless we can work out what kind of person so-and-so is, mm. then we'll never understand mm. what happened. So it's, a, it's really, my fascination is with trying to understand people. So does the person come first or the crime or does it... I think you can't separate them. Right. Lots of people try to. So lots of yeah. people, you know, I've heard many, many times at crime events, an audience member will say, so what comes first for you, plot or character? Yes, yes. Most people say character uh -huh. when they're asked that question. A couple of people, Jeffrey Deaver, for example, mm. he says plot mm -hmm. always. Um, but for me, you can't really separate them. Right. I don't think there can be any character without plot. Yes. So what always comes first for me is a character with a situation attached to them. Right. So, I mean, just as an example, my latest Poirot, I, I write Poirot yeah. novels for the Agatha Christie estate. Yes. And the latest one, The Mystery of Three Quarters, starts with four people receiving letters signed in the name of Hercule Poirot, mm -hmm. accusing them all of the same murder. So these four letters are exactly the same, apart from the name of the addressee. Yeah. And in each letter, Poirot says, I know that you murdered Barnabas Pandy. Yes. And, you know, go and turn yourself yeah. in. So these four people arrive on Poirot's doorstep one after another, pretty much, absolutely incensed and furious, saying, yeah. how dare you accuse me of the murder of Barnabas Pandy? Poirot's never heard of Barnabas mm. Pandy. He hasn't written these letters. And he, he wants to know who has and why mm. and why they've involved him. Because he doesn't know a Barnabas Pandy, he doesn't know whether he's real. He doesn't know whether he's dead. If he's dead, was he murdered? Mm. So Poirot then sets out to investigate. Now, that was the first idea I had for that book. Mm -hmm. And so that idea has a mystery attached yeah. to it and it has characters in it. Mm. So then that gets me developing both plot and characters at the same time. Because the next step is to think, well, who are those four people? Yes. Somebody chose them why mm -hmm. so all of all of the thinking that pushes the plot forward mm. has plot and character yeah. intermingling within it mm. so when you're writing in the past are you very aware of how conventions have changed and have they influenced motives i'm very aware of the different sort of requirements yes so i mean tonally a book set in 1930 yeah. is incredibly different mm. from a book set now i've just finished and delivered my next contemporary crime novel and in the first page a mother of a teenage boy is lamenting the fact that he's always glued to snapchat yeah. with his phone in his hand well i would know not to put that in a Poirot novel Good. That's... So it's 1930 yeah. um, and then there's also other kind of more subtle things that it's not like a direct case of don't put that in because that wasn't invented then. no but like storytelling conventions yes. were different then. Yeah. So in a golden age crime novel, yes. it's absolutely expected and welcome for a narrator to begin by saying, 
Let me tell you about the fascinating mystery I solved yeah. in the summer of 1928. But that's great. That's and kind of highlighting yes. the we're all going to hear an ace yes, story now yeah. factor. In contemporary crime fiction, that would be really weird. Nobody yeah, does would, that. Yeah, it would feel patronising somehow, wouldn't it? I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and almost sort of like infantilising. And yes. writers go to great lengths to create the impression that no one is telling anyone a story. <laughs> and this is just the reader happens yes. to be witnessing some stuff. Mm. Uh, so that, you know, that's something that I... yes. I'm aware of, yeah. and I, that's a big difference yes. between my Poirot novels and my yeah. contemporary. But what about crime? things like, you know, the ro- the role of women in the 1930s and expectations of what women might do? That is on a sort of character by character mm. basis. Yes, yeah. because I never, I would hate to write a book in which everybody behaved in the way that normal people of that era yeah. behave. Mm-hmm. In fact, my books are all about people who don't behave. Yes. Yeah. Wherever, wherever they're set, whether it's 1930 yes. or now, they're not doing what they're supposed no. to be doing. So that gives me a certain yeah. amount of freedom. So in my first Poirot novel, The Monogram Murders, there is a vicar's wife mm. who is very sympathetic to another not her husband but a different vicar yes who falls in love with a parishioner and basically has an extramarital yeah. affair with her and this devout vicar's wife in 1929 is quite proudly saying you know i'm sure god would agree with me that we must all follow our hearts yes. and be with the people that we love yeah and there shouldn't be a rule against mm. that and Catchpool, who's the narrator of my prior novels, mm. he's a Scotland Yard policeman. He's kind of thinking, this is not a thing a vicar's wife should be saying, which it isn't. Yes. But that's the whole point of yes. her character. She is a rebellious yes. character. Who she doesn't, sounds great. Yeah, she's my favourite character right, in the book, actually. Right. Yeah. So if Agatha Christie walked into this studio, what would you ask her? What do you think of my three Poirot would novels? You? Yeah, of course. I mean, I might say, like, did you have a good journey? Was your train on time? <laughs> yes. But yeah, yeah, the main thing I'd want to know is, do you think I'm doing a yeah, decent job? Yeah, of course. Job? So do you do you feel nervous about that ever? Do you think, I wonder what she's thinking about this? Um, I I don't feel nervous about, like, like what is she actually y- thinking? Yes, but, but I am always very conscious of, I always try to write novels that I think would maximally mm. please her. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I, I, I have no way of knowing how no. she'd feel about the whole <laughs> enterprise. I mean, yeah. I think at the time when she was alive, it would have seemed very odd to yes. her, the idea of someone writing one of her characters. Yeah. But I also think that now that it's much more of an accepted thing... Yes. Well, I don't know. I have no way of knowing. Her, her relatives, who are the only... You know, they're the, the sort of yeah. closest source I can get... Yeah they think that she was very very keen for her books and her stories to reach Mm. as many readers as possible Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and really that's why the family asked me to write more prior novels to create an effect which has really worked i mean it happens all the time i go and do a talk about my prior novels somebody will come and get their they'll buy them they'll get them signed and then they'll say you know i'm going to reread all about christy now that's exactly what everyone was yeah. hoping would happen. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think she'd be pleased about that. Yes. But I would want to know, if she walked in now, I'd yeah. say, now, Agatha, tell me strengths and weaknesses of all three of my prior novels. Yes. Which is your favourite? Yes. Which is your least favourite? Right. And why? Yes. I'd be very... Yeah, but you wouldn't say, why on earth did you end that particular book in this way? Or Oh, no, I'd never criticise her. No, no, she's my hero. She's beyond criticism. Right. Okay, fair enough. I might, I might say, do you fancy writing the next one that's due in in December? <laughs> Maybe you could do a bit. Yes. And then I'll do a bit. Take turns. 
Um, you're incredibly busy. I mean, you travel around a lot. You're writing the whole time. Can you tell us a bit about your writing routine? Yeah. So my writing routine is the aspect of my writing life that I'm least satisfied with. Right. And it's continually a work in progress. Mm. And I always imagine that other writers have got the writing routine mm -hmm. sussed. I've got one writer friend in particular who just has the best writing routine. She writes four days a week. Right. Between 11 and 1.30. Uh -huh. She goes to a cafe. Yeah. Always the same cafe. And from 11 till 1.30, she will be there writing. Mm -hmm. She will always write exactly 2,500 words. Right. And so she knows that every week lot. she will produce 10,000 words. Yes. And... I've known about this for years, this yes. brilliant writing routine, and yet I never seem to implement it myself. No. That would probably be my ideal. What actually happens is I wake up, often I'm exhausted because I did too much the day before, then the dog turns up and wants to play or wants to go out, or a teenager will suddenly ring up and go... There's been a monstrous injustice at school. I've been accused of not wearing my blazer when I was wearing my Presumably blazer. Presumably this is a teenager you know, not just any random Yes, teenager. no, one of mine. Yeah. <laughs> one of my, not running a helpline for teenagers. One of my teenage children will ring up with a school-based yes. terrible injustice, yes. which yes. I'll then have to get exercised about. Um, and then my husband will come in and go, oh, did I mention that so-and-so's coming around for coffee? So there's a lot of kind of chaos and faffing yeah. about in mm -hmm. the morning. Mm-hmm. So then my writing time is usually the afternoon. Uh-huh. Um, and then I usually never quite get enough writing time. So I then usually have to do a bit more writing after everyone's gone to bed. Right. But after every book, so at the moment I'm not writing a book. Yeah. I haven't yet started the next one. I always think I'm just going to have a proper routine. I'm going to stick to it. Mm -hmm. and, then I, and then my life will be so much better. Yeah. So I'm determined to have a good writing routine and yes. I think the 11 to 130 one is a really good right I might need to I don't think I could write 2,500 words that's a lot I mean I easily could write that much yeah. in two and a half hours but only after two hours of warming up yes I can't I don't think I could immediately get into that zone of right and do you plan what you're going to write yes in okay. great detail so right before you that, start that is yeah. one technique that has I would say that's probably been the most helpful thing mm. that I've developed over mm. the years is I, I realized at a certain point that the more detailed a plan mm. I write for each novel, the happier and easier the whole process is. So mm. what I now routinely do for every book is I'll spend one or two months working on a plan. Yeah. That's about 100 to 150 pages long. Right. And that plan is basically the whole book, mm. every single element mm. of it, in order, so divided into chapters, uh -huh. but in note form, so yeah. not well written. Yeah. So it might say, like, chapter one, Mary arrives at the post office, sees a man with a briefcase, three women are whispering. Just mm. anything that might be relevant mm. is listed in note form. And so I do that all the way to the end. And then I can actually look at the, a sort of overview of the story structure. Mm. And very often it needs tweaking yeah. or improving. And I can do that at the planning stage which is so useful because then I don't write the problematic yeah. structural bits into a complete draft. Because once you've written something into a whole book, it's much harder to take yes, out and change. Yes, thing unravels, yeah. So what that's meant is that it means I get to um, divide up the writing process mm -hmm. into 
story architecture. Mm-hmm. And then once that's all settled, writing the book and making sure it's as good as it can be. Right. And it means you only need to be neurotic about one thing at a time, which okay. is very useful. Yes. Yeah. So if I'm worrying about, am I bringing chapter two to life well enough? Yeah. Then at least I can think, well, thank goodness I don't also have to worry about is the plot doing what yes, it should be doing yeah. in chapter two. So that's been brilliant. Yeah. And it saved me, I would say, a good year on uh-huh. each novel. Right. So once you start writing, how long does it generally take you? If the plan is sound yes. and has been properly edited, then the actual writing process could take me like two, three months. Wow, that's fast. And then there's usually another month and a half of tweaking, editing, mm. rewriting. Mm-hmm. And do you, who do you show it to before your editor or your agent sees it would you show it to anyone the only person who sees it before my editor is uh, my friend emily winslow who's mm-hmm. also a writer and who's also going to be teaching on yes, the she's master's one of our degree tutors, yeah yeah and she's going to be one of the tutors mm. on the master's degree um emily and i are in a writing group of two we yes. are the only people in the writing yeah. group um, and we started doing that when i first moved to cambridge in mm. 2010 we met at a literary event mm-hmm. and I think one of us said, let's be a writing group yeah. of two. And it works brilliantly because we are both really rigorous editors. Yeah. So I have been in writing groups where people read each other's work and go, oh, I thought it was lovely. Yes. I yes. thought it was great. And that's not yeah. much use. So Emily and I will forensically mm. look for what could be improved mm-hmm. in each other's work. And we both find it massively yeah. beneficial. Yeah. So she's the only person nobody right. else sees it till my editor right. has yes. improved it. Yeah. And how many books have you written now? Um, I don't actually know. Uh, I mean, I think roughly, yeah. I think I've published about five books of poetry, five children's books, if you count my Moomin translations yes. from yeah. Toby Janssen, um, 13 or so contemporary crime novels yeah. and three Poirot novels and right. then a self-help book called yes. How to Hold a yes. Grudge which makes me very nervous in which yes. I did in which I bang on about why holding grudges is actually yes. good for you yes. if you do it in the right way yeah great you don't need to be nervous I okay. haven't got any grudges about you yet um <laughs> right I just have some some quick fire questions to end with so where do you write anywhere I can Right. I have a writing room in my house which I never write in. Yes. I don't know why. I think it's because I'm a natural rebel. The minute I call something yeah, a writing room, obviously. I don't want to write yes. in it. So I write in the lounge, in the TV room, on trains, on aeroplanes, in hotels, in cafes sometimes. Right. Just wherever I've got a spare couple of hours yeah. and my laptop is yeah. present. Great. Do you write anything by hand or is it all pounding out on a computer? I write on a MacBook Pro apart from when I'm making notes. Uh So if it's serious writing or planning, I'll do it on a computer. When it's the really, really fun bit of just like jotting down ideas, I like to do that in a beautiful notebook. Right. So I'm always buying beautiful notebooks. Yes, that's very important. Yeah. Um, Tea or coffee or something stronger when you're writing? Earl Grey tea with milk. Very precise. Um, we've talked about planning. Uh, morning, afternoon or evening, we've, we've talked about you just kind of sounds like you snatch moments when you can. Yeah, although ideally afternoon. Yeah, okay. Uh, music, radio or silence when you're writing? Silence. 
I'm genuinely baffled that anybody can write while listening to music. Yeah. I just think, how on earth is that possible? Loads of writers do. Mm. They have like constant yes. sort of playlist that they listen to. Yeah. But I don't know how they hear the rhythm of the sentences. No, no. So do you ever read your work out loud? It sounds weird, but I read it out loud in my head because I do a lot of read. You know, I, I do constant sort of yeah. events and readings. Yeah. I can hear how it would sound yes. if I read it aloud. Yeah. So I sort of do a reading aloud in my head that isn't actually aloud. Yeah. <laughs> and do you have a daily word count? Um, I'd have to say no. What I do do is regularly work out when my deadline is. Mm-hmm. Work out how many days there are between right. now and the deadline. Yeah. And then work out how many words that means I mm-hmm. need to do every day. Mm-hmm. Decide I'm going to do that. Fail to do that every day. Do another calculation based on how many days are now left. Yeah. So I, I reckon for every book I write, I probably waste about 20 hours recalculating <laughs> the necessary <laughs> daily word count. Yeah. And actually what would be much more sensible would be to just think, the book will be finished when it's yes. finished and I'm not going to stress about words yeah. per day. Yeah. Do you believe in writer's block? <laughs> I, I think, I mean, I certainly think there are many, many things. Well, I know there are many, many things that stop writers from writing. Yes. And I guess you could categorize, you could have a sort of umbrella term like writer's block. But I think it's much more useful to think, well, what? what is it in each case that's stopping people from writing because it's so many different things that to just say writer's block Mm. isn't particularly helpful Mm. Mm -hmm. so i i would like i always want to diagnose it in a bit more yes detail so that you know there's some kind there's something that could be perceived as writer's block which shouldn't be which is you just don't want to write at the moment Mm. and i think that's fine like Mm. there are times when i just don't like at the moment i'm not writing anything no that's absolutely fine i'm yeah. not blocked i'm no. just not writing at yes the moment. yeah i want i want not to be writing yeah so i guess writer's block is when you really want to be writing and you're not because something is stopping you yes uh yeah that is a very very real thing mm. have you ed- ever had it um no but what i have had is writer's extreme reluctance <laughs> So yes. I have that, you know, whenever I first turn on my computer yes. to start serious work, there's always between 10 minutes and half an hour when I desperately don't want to accept that I'm about to start doing some yes. serious work. Yes. And so at that point, I'll think, I'll just look on Twitter. I'll just yeah. look on Rightmove, see if any equestrian small holdings have come <laughs> up for sale. <laughs> you know, and then once I actually accept that I have mm. to start writing and I do and I immerse myself in it then I love it yeah but there's always that sort of initial resistance but I've I've never had writer's block where I just can't write yes yeah okay important question cat or dog dog definite I, dog I mean I love cats too yes but I adore dog I, I think a dog should be prime minister oh no question I mean like Think of all the political sort of divisions there are at the moment yes. where everyone's arguing about yes. everything all day long. Like imagine if a really cute dog were Prime yes. Minister. No one would know its political views because no. it wouldn't be able to... Well, no. In fact, it wouldn't have because dogs don't have political views. So, oh, do they not? No, I'm okay. pretty sure dogs just don't have right. political okay. views. So, yes. like that takes all the arguments yes. and, and conflict out of it yes. because everyone would just go, 
what a cute dog. Sweet dog. Who cares that yes. he hasn't got any political views? Yes. Let's all get behind him anyway. Yes, and go for a walk. I mean, yeah. that's not much madder than some of the things that no, are I think actually it, I think, happening. I think it's very sensible. <laughs> so what kind of dog do you have? I have a Welsh terrier called Brewster, right. who's gorgeous. Although I wouldn't put him forward for Prime Minister because he's a bit stubborn and... Uh, He's on Twitter quite a bit. He's though, on isn't Twitter yes, a lot, yeah, yeah. But he hasn't got the calm temperament that okay. a prime minister dog right. would need. But like a nice sort of Bedlington terrier would yes. be a good prime minister. Yes, they're very minister. calm, aren't they? Yeah, and, and or maybe and maybe lamb-like. a golden retriever. Yes, well, yes, basically yeah. anything but a human. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. Humans don't seem to be doing terribly no. well. It's time for a dog to take over. So, Sophie, Hannah, thank you very much. Been really interesting talking to you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to know more about our many creative writing courses and our new Masters in Crime and Thriller writing, please go to our website at www.ice.cam.ac.uk. You can also email me at midge.gillis at tutor.ice.cam.ac.uk. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank Sophie Hanna for hanging out with me And if you'd like to find Sophie, you can find her online at sophiehanna.com and on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can email me at midge.gillis at tutor.ice.cam.ac.uk. If you have thoughts on crime writing or writing suspense or reading suspense, I would love to hear them. And if you want to get in touch to find out about any of our courses or to ask me any questions, please feel free to email. I love hearing from you, so please feel free to do so. If you have an idea or you want to suggest a guest or a question for us to cover on our podcast, or if you want to tell us about a book that has got you thinking, email me at midge.gillis at tutor.ice.cam.ac.uk. So, on behalf of Sophie Hanna and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading in every genre, and we hope you have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you back here next week when I'll be interviewing the crime writer Jim Kelly who will be talking about how great it is to live with another writer. Spoiler alert, that's me.